First of all, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would open our hearts. It is our prayer and our hope that as we walk on the earth that we are regularly opening our hearts to you and allowing the plow of God's word to break through the soil of our heart. But oftentimes I fear we do not, but I pray that today as we look at these two verses, um, very practical in meaning, very difficult perhaps to, to follow the requirement in your word, I pray that you will bring us before you in a, uh, a position of repentance, of hope, looking for your spirit to empower not only our actions, but even deeper to transform our hearts so that these actions in this chapter of Ephesians that denote a transformed life, that these actions do not just come from our own strength and our own merit and our own ability to get things done, but that, Father, they will truly be fruits of a transformed life. I pray that for all of us. I pray that for me that this will be a message that challenges but also gives hope. For the trials and the sadness that we've seen in our country and also around the world with the earthquake in China, we are reminded that there is sadness, there's brokenness, there's evil, there is good, And we can only rest, not understanding everything, but we can just rest in your hands. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in the work of your son on the cross to save us, realize that this is a temporary journey, that this is a broken place that we live in, that we are here to spread the gospel, that we are here to love our fellow man, to comfort the sorrowing. And I pray that you will use the folks in this church, all of us, as we touch other lives who may be questioning the existence of evil in the world and may be questioning why a loving God would allow these things to happen, that you would allow us to touch lives day to day and that even in tragedy we might see the gospel advance as only in the gospel is true healing and comfort and joy and rest and peace. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here, and we pray that 
you will be magnified as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the theme of this part of chapter 4 of Ephesians have been the characteristics, has been the characteristics of a transformed new life. The opening part of chapter 4 builds upon the theme of unity of the church as exemplified by the phrase in verse, uh, in verse number 2, I urge you, verse, verse, number, verse number 1, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the unity of the church is emphasized in verses 1 through 17. And in the latter half of this chapter, we see that the unity of the church is exemplified in verses 18 to 32. But in this part of the text that we read, verses 25 to 32, we see multiple examples, almost a listing of new life characteristics, characteristics of a person who has been transformed and given a new life in Christ. It is very important that we understand that this list, these are not characteristics, these are not actions that save us. These are characteristics instead of lives that have been transformed by salvation. These examples are not just moralistic sayings or aphorisms. Instead, they are spirit-empowered life characteristics that glorify God that turn others to God as they look on the lives of transformed people in wonder because of the difference in those lives. These are supernaturally empowered examples of Christian behavior. There's a certain helpful logical structure in these verses, uh, starting in verse number 25, of these examples in this section that go on into chapter 5. The, the, the logical structure, if, you're, if you are mathematically minded at all, it is kind of like don't do X, but do Y because of Z. Don't do X, but do Y because of Z. If you're not math, mathematically minded, that's cool too. I love you. But it's, uh, hang with me. So, for, for example, look at verse 25. Don't do X. Don't, don't speak falsehood. Instead, do Y. Speak truth. For we are members one of another. Verse 26, don't sin, but be angry, but don't give opportunity to the devil to attack our unity. Verse 28, don't steal, but work honestly. Why? Or for what reason? So that you have something to share with others in need. And so the Z, the reason we do all these things is for the unity of the church to build up the unity of the body. So in this passage, we also see an emphasis on the importance and the impact of our words and the power of communication. Now, those who have been here for a while, this should not be news to us, or if you've read the book of James. You know, we, we went through James, I guess, two years ago as, as a church. Remember the, the verses in James that say, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So today's X, Y, and Z cover communication. Don't communicate, in verse 29, don't communicate in a way that is corrupting or unwholesome. Instead, communicate for building up in a fitting way so that you give grace to those who hear. 
So you may have heard the saying, words mean things. I'll add to that, words do things to the people that are hearing your words. But I'll say God wants to use our words. God wants to use our communication in a very specific way for his glory, to build unity in his church, the bride of Christ. So first of all, the, the transformed new life of a Christian is a life that is marked by proper biblical communication. So the first outline point, what do I mean by evaluate our communication biblically? I have two main points under this section. The first point that we see is in verse 29. It is the negative example, the example that we are being warned against. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. No doubt this verse has been stated in many a bathroom as a parental hand is reaching for a, in the old days it was a bar of soap, it's probably now a squirty thing with antibacterial stuff. But the the point, and, and I don't know, maybe this generation doesn't do that anymore. I apologize if that's wrong. To do, but it's, it's like a, a parent might say, we, you know, we don't use that word and we're going to wash your mouth out with soap. And the child is wondering, like, this has nothing to, I, I'm still thinking it. Is not in my mouth, but the word for corrupting is translated here and in other versions as unwholesome, unfit, rotting, putrefied. I think it is appropriate to extend this not just to words, but to communication, because we know it's not just the words that we say, but it's also the tone of voice with which we communicate that can have great negative impact or can be a blessing. Written text, things that we write to each other, things that we type, they also have the power to bless and to curse. So unwholesome, unfit, rotten. These are words, some examples that came to mind. These are words uh, that are like a rotten piece of fruit. Um, If you're my generation, you've heard, or, or maybe it's still... A saying today, one apple spoils the whole bunch. Um, I, I think that's scientifically true that you know when a, a piece of fruit rots, if you put it with other fruit, it will rot. Um, I'm not sure where fruit flies come from, but uh, but I, I know uh, words that rot, words that are rotten, have an impact on those who hear. It can be like acid that spills. If, if you've done chemistry, acid is corrosive. There's that international sign for warning for acid that has a hand with a little notch in it from where you spilled acid on it and say, don't do this or you'll have a perfect notch in your hand. Um, Acid spills and it eats away at metal or flesh. The same corrosive, corrupting effect can come from our words. Unfit, like a broken brick that is not fit for use in a building or wall. Our words can be unfit for use, for hearing. Now, the Bible does have some specific things to say about negative forms of communication. I will go quickly through these. Uh, You can jot them down or you can just listen. But the Bible says things like, uh, addresses slander in Proverbs 10.18. Slander in Proverbs 10.18. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. The Bible addresses gossip in Proverbs 16.28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. 
Wow, thousands of years ago in the same effect of gossip. A whisperer separates close friends. Um, The Bible addresses divisive argumentation, divisive argumentative words in Titus 3, Titus chapter 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The Bible addresses filthy language later on in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Colossians 3.8, Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This is very specific. Lying in Psalm 34.13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And earlier in this chapter, as Joseph presented to us a few weeks ago about not speaking falsehood, so the Bible specifically addresses slander and gossip and other things, boasting that I, that I haven't covered here. But who determines what slander is? Who determines what filthy language is? We live in a culture where perhaps in some circles all words are acceptable. People may say um, words are only assigned meaning by the culture, so they're not inherently evil. So I can say what I want, and if it offends you, That is your problem. Just because others around us, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, might embrace certain types of communication, certain types of tone, words and ideas, should that be our frame of reference? Is it a scale that slides depending on the culture you're in? This message will not define the list of good and bad words for you. Defining the ultimate list of what you can say and you can't say is a fool's errand, my friends. As much as we all might like, and I think deep down, we all like to know what the target is. We all would like a list or some boundaries set or the FCC to give us a list of what can be said or for your parents to say this this word in our house, this word you can't use in our house. But this is not what the scripture is calling us today, to define that and just get as close as we can to the boundary. See, we need to change our intellectual construct away from asking the question, what am I allowed to say? Or what words am I not allowed to say? I mean, parents, when when the child comes to you and says, okay, what am I allowed to do? Be wary. They're looking for that boundary and they're going to get real close to it. And then they will perhaps accidentally go over that boundary. We all want boundaries and lists and definitions. We all are legalists at heart because if we have that list of what is acceptable, we can be self-righteous and, and, and define our righteousness by meeting that list. But even in that misplaced desire, we forget a basic biblical truth about the words that we speak about our communication. And that truth is what is in the heart comes forth through the mouth. The attitudes and actions and desires of the heart condemn us, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount study. As Jesus said in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 to 37, he said, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. The words that we say come from our heart. That's an unalterable law. Since what we say comes from our heart, it doesn't matter whether we have the list of good and bad words. It's our heart position and our attitude that matters the most. If our heart is right, the communication will be right. But even then, I want to turn it around. Our communication is not just for our own usage. Our communication is for a higher purpose as believers. We speak as changed new life creations, and our words are not our own. Our tone of voice is not for us to use um, as our own way of expression. What we write and what we post on on the Internet, what we say, these must be for the sake of advancing the kingdom. What I'm stating is not an idealized goal of what we might achieve someday and we'll, we'll get to in heaven. This is what God calls us here for us here today. This is for real. So as we study today, what is unwholesome communication? Let me posit for your consideration this definition. What is unwholesome communication? Any pattern of communication that fits the old life more than the new life in Christ. Any pattern of communication that fits the old life more than our new life in Christ. As part of our as part of being defined as people, one illustration that may help, there are our churches, and this is something we, we should guard against here, but there may be churches that you've attended in the past that if you were to go to a person at that church, a pastor or a member there, and you say, what, what do you guys believe at this church? And if they start out and saying, well, we, we don't believe in, and I'm going to speak of the church of my high school years, okay? So I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, in an um, independent fundamental Baptist church there. And so what, what do you believe at this church, at Calvary Heights Baptist Church in Baton Rouge? This is no longer there. Well, we, we don't believe in women wearing pants. We don't believe in um, drinking, smoking, chewing, running with the girls that do any of those things. Um, that, that's a southern expression. But what were the, those things that define us should not be the things that we're against. You should not be defined. What do you believe is not just what you're against. And by the same token, looking at this passage, don't have your speech characterized by what you say or what you can't say. I'm sorry, I really messed that line up. Don't let your speech be characterized by what you can't say. If someone says, you know, how, how good a communicator are you in an interview? Uh, are you good at communication? Well, I don't curse. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't cut down people that often unless, I'm, unless they, they provoke me. No, we should be defined by what we say. Be people that are, we'll see the, the definition, edifying communication. So as we move on um, to, the next, to the next part of this verse 29, shift that paradigm from what are you not allowed to say to what should we say. Continuing in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Instead of talk that is unwholesome or corrupts or is corrosive or is rotten, a transformed new life Christian communicates in a way that builds up, that edifies and fits the need. So we see now an even more clear definition of unwholesome talk. And this is strong. If it does not build up and if it does not fit the need of the moment, then it is unwholesome and corrupting. If what we say does not build up the hearer, does not meet the need of the moment, then it is unwholesome and corrupting. The words that we say every day in every conversation are to build up the listener, the hearer, and are are to be fitting and appropriate to meet the need of the moment. Think about the conversations that you've had at home this morning. Think about the conversations that you had at work this past Friday at lunch or the time you had coffee with a friend this week. Consider the meeting you may have had with your child's teacher this week. Did our conversation build up the listener? Did our communication fit the need of the moment? And note, this does not say the purpose of our communication is to edify other believers that we speak to, but if you run into non-Christians, by all means, unload on them with both barrels. We are to communicate in a way that builds up the listener. I work for a software company down the street, Synopsis, and our CEO is a man named Art Degeus. He's, a, I think, a, a Dutch, it's a Dutch name, but um, he, he's a good guy. I don't know if he's a believer or not. But I think uh, probably six years ago, I heard him speak at one of our corporate events. And uh, he, he said he has one goal for all the Synopsis employees to undertake this philosophy in communication. He says, regardless of the topic, at the end of the meeting, any interaction that you have, regardless of the topic, at the end of the meeting, leave the other person feeling one inch taller. Leave the other person feeling one inch taller. Now, for those, this is a metaphor, okay? You, you want to build up the other person. This is something in corporate. Um, I honestly don't know if he's a believer, but this is something, let's just assume our, our, um, our, our corporate staff may be unbelievers. This is a philosophy that is seen as a positive thing by the world in a company. Interact with each other in a way that leaves the other person feeling one inch taller Now, hearing it in Scripture is even stronger and obviously much more important that God is telling us not to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths. But only, note that word, but only such communication that is good for building up as fits the occasion. And furthermore, through our communication, God bestows, God gives grace to the hearer through us. God gives grace to the hearer of our words and our communication through us. Sometimes when we pray, we talk about we are unworthy tools in the hand of the master. Father, we thank you for using a broken vessel like us that you see fit to use us to accomplish your will. Never lose that. And this is another example that with our sinful hearts, with our still being transformed hearts and our words and our communication, God is seeing fit to give grace To those who hear, we are to build up those who hear us. We are to meet the need of the moment. And through that, 
God uses our communication as a means of grace. So let us now move to verse number 30, to the second main point. And it's a bit of a surprise, I admit, that Paul breaks into his list. You know, he's been talking about don't be angry, don't, don't speak falsehood, don't steal. He breaks into his list of transformed new life behavior for Christians with this admonition that I call recognize our divine audience. The verse in verse 30 of chapter 4 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Commentators admit that this is an unexpected yet very important command that Paul has injected into this verse. It's always gratifying to read a scholar say, we're not exactly sure why this verse comes at this point, but we do know it is divinely inspired and we do know it is important for us to look carefully at the meaning of this verse. First of all, I would observe that this verse coming in the middle of this list of new life characteristics implies that each of these behaviors, lying, anger, stealing, corrupt communication, these are things that are observed by our triune God and that are especially felt by the Holy Spirit. The word grieve is is a word we still use today, but it means to cause sorrow, to cause pain or distress. These are very personal feelings that a person feels. And when we speak and communicate in an unwholesome manner, we cause the Holy Spirit of God pain. There's an appropriate parallel with verse 27 of this same chapter when Paul mentions, give no opportunity to the devil, give no opportunity to the devil to break the unity of the body. Now, tying this reference to the devil here with a reference to the spirit, this same spirit is referred to earlier in chapter 4 as the spirit of unity. So Paul is saying to break the unity of the body is to cause pain to the Holy Spirit. We are surrounded by invisible beings, spirit, the devil, and our victories and defeats, our sins and our right actions are not only observed, but felt deeply by the Spirit of God. If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 63. We'll do a quick jump back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, and I just wanted to draw your attention, jot this down. I think it will be good to spend some time uh, perhaps later this week and looking more closely and flipping back and forth. But let me give you just a few highlights from Isaiah 63 in a parallel passage. So I'll be talking, I won't read, but uh, look at verses 7 through 14. So locate Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. In Ephesians, when Paul is saying, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, he is referencing that prophetic citation in Isaiah 63, specifically in verse 10, where the prophet Isaiah mentions, that they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. So so walking quickly through this, in verse 7, the prophet Isaiah begins by praising God for his steadfast love and goodness. He mentions in verse 8 that God became their Savior. He loved them and redeemed them in verse 9. He lifted them up and carried them. And then verse 10 comes and says, The people, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. The description in Isaiah is of a people who were redeemed, calls them redeemed in verse 9, yet they rebelled and sinned and caused pain, distress, and sorrow to the Holy Spirit. 
So he fought against them and became their enemy. But then in verse 11, the people remember God's goodness to them. And the passage closes with the wonderful phrase in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. And the Lord leads the people to make for himself a glorious name. Now, this Old Testament prophecy parallels our own experience, doesn't it? Paul references it, but in the New Testament, we have a parallel perspective. In Isaiah, the work of the Spirit is indicative, where it says the people rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. But here in Ephesians, we are commanded. It moves from the indicative to the imperative tone. We are commanded, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah, the Spirit gives the people rest, but in Ephesians, the Spirit gives unity and seals the believer. The themes of redeemed people are woven through both of these passages, but here in Ephesians, we have the greater reminder and an even greater hope in that phrase, we are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, what does that mean? We are sealed until the day of redemption. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We are sealed until the day of redemption. As a reminder, what is that sealing? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 read, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit seals us at the point of salvation. There are three possible meanings to being sealed, and all of them seem to be applicable. Number one, a seal can be a stamp of authenticity, that this is real. A seal can be a brand of ownership, signifying that this is owned by the person whose seal it is. It can be a secured, a security measure, something that is secured in such a way, so it's sealed from any harm, sealed from punishment. Whatever the meaning, or perhaps for all three of this meanings, these meanings, Paul, in verse 30, is taking us simultaneously from the point of conversion where we are sealed, and he points us forward looking to that final day of redemption when we shall receive the inheritance mentioned in Ephesians 1. This interjection regarding the grieving of the Spirit and being sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption may be unexpected, but it is meaningful. These new life characteristics that Paul lays out here, these are not just drudgery and description of the tedium of living as Christians in the world. No, instead, Paul is reminding us that we are redeemed people who are able to behave in these manners because of the Spirit of God. To not put away the things, like put away falsehood, to not put away those things, and to not put on the description of the behaviors in our passage, that is grievous to the person of the Holy Spirit of God who owns us, who authorizes us to act in this fashion, and who keeps us secure. So as part of our regular sermon preparation, those of you who attend here regularly know that there's uh, three, um, the, the three elders and other men rotate in, but we meet each week to go over the previous message, to go over the upcoming message, to talk over things, to try out, um, you know, is it is it appropriate to draw this meaning from the text? But one of the things we do, we encourage each other in our preparation to stop and consider the real-life, real-time, grace-and-truth Bible church applications. 
You see, it's really easy when preaching to preach to the choir. We haven't had a choir in many years, but you understand the expression preaching to the choir. It's easy to come up with red meat sort of words that get people nodding, get people in the south, get people amening and hooting and hollering, running the aisles. Um, It's easy to come up with stuff that isn't a problem for your hearers, but boy, we can band together and point our fingers elsewhere at the problems out there. But it gets a little more real and maybe a little more uncomfortable if we consider today the types of unwholesome words and the types of unwholesome communication that we in this room might be guilty of maintaining. We might be guilty of excusing it. We might be guilty of committing this sort of communication regularly. So I want this passage to make all of us think and consider whether we might need God today to bring some areas to our attention that need some spirit-empowered adjustments. You see, it's our prayer that you not just come here and see friends, which is great, and sing good, God-honoring music, which is great, and hear a message from God's Word and keep it all intellectual and not feel it here. Not that I want everyone to get every single point of what I'm saying, because I know this is a flawed presentation. But if there's one thing that God has for you today, I want you to look for that. I want you to pray for that. And I want you to, not in your own power, but say, God, through your spirit, give me the power to address this in my life. So these are four things that God laid on my heart that I would address here. I may be a little hesitant because it's uncomfortable because this is how we talk. This is how we communicate. But go into this prayerfully with me, these four applications. Um, First of all, unwise and impulsive words. Secondly, discriminatory favoritism. So unwise and impulsive words, discriminatory favoritism. Thirdly, judgmentally divisive words. And then fourthly, internet communication. Unwise and impulsive words, first of all. Perhaps the most common application of this verse, as I mentioned with the bar of soap mentioned, is that the most common application of this verse is to cursing and expletives. To be sure, taking God's name in vain is filthy communication, as we've read in Ephesians and in Colossians. These should not be characteristics of a new life Christian. Time does not allow me to go into more than a sideswipe of what one trend for some Christians that they may say words only have meaning that are assigned to them by culture, therefore they aren't inherently wrong to say. I would say quickly the cultural meaning assigned to that word in the culture you live in, that is significant. And that is Um, legitimate, and it does help you see whether your words are corrupt. It does help you to see whether your words and saying that, are you building up, are you edifying, are you uh, giving grace to the hearer? But I don't believe, and and many people here may not have a problem with what most people consider profanity. But perhaps more applicable for us today would be words that we utter in anger 
We may say jerk to the person who interrupts our agenda or plan. We may call a person who's driving in a way that doesn't meet our standards an idiot. Parents, I'm sorry if I'm using words that you don't allow in your homes. Um, Seriously, I've, I've tried to choose examples that are innocuous. We use these words in the heat of anger. We use these words when we are losing control of our emotions. How are these words wholesome? How are these words that are not corrupting? Perhaps more telling would be if we look at these words as God does, which is it's an outpouring of our hearts. And in our hearts, they seem to reflect that we have a me-centered perspective. You are interrupting my plans. Therefore, you are euphemism or expletive. A harmless euphemism uttered in anger and hatred is no less corrupt or unwholesome than a whole string of FCC banned words. A harmless euphemism uttered in anger and hatred is no less corrupt and unwholesome than a string of FCC banned words. Unwise, impulsive and angry words for us to stop this corrupt communication from proceeding out of our mouths requires heart change. The second example might be discriminatory favoritism. The book of James makes it clear that we sin when we exhibit favoritism, when we treat people differently based on our understanding of, say, their wealth or their importance. But perhaps our corrupt communication, our communication is more subtle and insidious. It's not like in James where we say, oh, come sit at this table. But we may say things about people that show discrimination and favoritism. In my opinion, it seems popular among Christians to decry political correctness. Political correctness is something that um, the liberal mainstream media and the government want us to do. And Christians frequently will say, you know what, I, I can't say that word. I've, I've always referred to those people by that term. I don't want to argue here whether political correctness is good or bad, but I want us to look at our words through the filter of these verses. Are we being unwholesome and corrupting in our communication if we refer to this city where God has placed us, where God has put us to live and serve, if we refer to it as the pejorative Hills Burrito. I may have heard that. How do we justify referring to an entire ethnic group with disdain or even with what we might feel is a harmless, but nonetheless a reduction of the dignity of the individual as one created in God's image? We reduce their dignity by assigning stereotypes. How can we reconcile that with being part of the body of Christians that makes up the church, the bride of Christ, part of the heavenly choir in Revelation 5 that cries out, worthy is the lamb, the people from every tribe and nation and tongue. We need to change our words. I need to change so that my words reflect God's love for the people that he created. I need God to change my heart so that the words coming out of my mouth are indicative of God's love for people shown through me. Let there be no prejudice in our communication, prejudice for ethnic group or education level or socioeconomic class or neighborhood 
or attire or appearance. Another timely and sensitive area where we may be guilty of corrupting unwholesome communication is an area where I feel like I'm just going to touch on it today. But it may be worth more discussion in the upcoming weeks. And sure enough, the the topic will come up in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. But consider for a moment, are we fulfilling God's call for our communication, our words to be edifying, to be fit for the moment, to bestow grace to the hearers? Are we fulfilling God's standard in how we discuss and address homosexuality? Let me be clear. Let me be loving. Let me admonish us as a church body. Homosexuality is a sin. Homosexual marriage confuses and misrepresents God's definition of marriage which is a picture of Christ and the church. But we are wrong if we represent homosexuality as a worse sin than that of lust. We are wrong when we consider homosexuality to be worse than any sexual sin outside of God's plan in marriage. We are wrong to say that homosexuals are uniquely in sexual sin when all of us our sexual sinners, and in one way or another are misdirecting our God-given desire. We sin deeply when we mock other sinners. We sin deeply when we portray this sin as worse than others. Is gay marriage worse than an unmarried couple being together outside of marriage? Personally, I feel like the answer is no. It is to me the infuriating, lazy preacher who uses homosexuality as the cultural boogeyman, the ultimate sin. Look how bad things have gotten because of the this one sin. Brothers and sisters, this church is for sinners of all kinds, for only here can we be freed from sin, only through the power of preaching and the truth of gospel, can we be freed from the slavery to sin, whether it be anger, gluttony, lust, laziness, idolatry, hatred? Look at Romans chapter 1. There's many, many other sins listed there along with homosexual practices that are also on the same, that God sees the same, but we should see them too. We will not mock sinners here at Grace and Truth. We will love sinners such as us. We will not use prejudicial slurs, dismissive terms, or mocking anecdotes. Fathers, please do not use homosexual slurs to bully your sons into meeting your twisted idea of manhood. Although we will clearly state and preach that sexual sin is wrong, we as Christians cannot fulfill God's command In this verse, if we speak in an unwholesome, corrosive, corrupting manner about our fellow men and women who struggle with this particular sin, it just so happens that our sin of gossip, our sin of laziness, it's not up in front of the Supreme Court for a decision. Our sin might just be considered acceptable by ourselves. Our sin of choice might be considered acceptable by church culture, but our sin 
sends us to hell outside of Christ, just like any other sin. When I say I admonish us as a church body, I do not mean I know that I know of any particular individual. I have not heard conversations. I just think as an evangelical church, it is easy for us to, to castigate, to, to ostracize and hold this one sin out as worse than the others. And I believe to my heart and my core that that is wrong. But discriminatory favoritism expressed in our communication is corrupting and corrosive, and it does not glorify God. It has no place in the life of the believer. Thirdly, judgmental divisiveness. Titus 3.9 refers to a person who stirs up division and seeks after controversies and quarrels. I read that verse earlier. Um, Sometimes Christians have earned the, the reputation of being more in love with being right than they are with being in love with Christ or loving other people. Let us not be Christians that are more in love with being right. We know Christians or we might be Christians who feel like we have the self-proclaimed gift of picking apart the error of other Christians. We might cloak the sinful desire through words and titles like watchdog for the truth, contending for the faith, defender of the word, We should not be believers who are one-issue Christians and when that issue is not a core, fundamental, gospel-centered belief. Whether it's the timing of the second coming or the style of music that a person should listen to or the style of schooling, I covered some of this weeks ago and we're talking about the walls that are up and um, earlier in Ephesians, but let me just here encourage us not to be communicators who are judgmental and divisive in our communication. And then finally, the fourth application for today's message is in our Internet communications. Although verse 29 says, talk coming out of your mouths, I think it's highly appropriate that God also intends for our words, as expressed by clicks and keystrokes, to also be wholesome, to also be edifying. Two quick areas that we, where we may be prone to unwholesome communication on the Internet. And there, there may be, you may think of others. And just trust that God's Spirit is bringing that to your mind. Uh, For me, participation on blogs, either as an author or as a commenter, our command to avoid corrupt communication is no less relevant just because we happen to be anonymous. If you're anonymous, it doesn't mean that you can speak corruptly and tear down people. Or if we don't personally know the person that we, we are t- we're talking to online, that command to avoid unwholesome communication still is to, to be characteristic of our lives as new creation Christians. We should heighten our awareness as we participate in the medium of the Internet to the appropriateness of our comment and whether it's an edifying nature for us to participate in the discussion according to these verses. And secondly, assumptive righteousness. Assumptive righteousness. And it makes sense to me, but that probably means it won't make sense to anyone else. But assumptive righteousness. And hear me out, this, this scenario where the Internet is very, very helpful. It can be a blessing to allow people to have an outlet to express their opinions, to talk about their passions, their hobbies, or their interests. But if any of us turn that writing outlet into a platform 
for loading guilt on a person, for not doing exactly what I do, for not pursuing things the way I would, then that becomes corrupt communication. Let me give you an example that I, I don't know for certain, but uh, just given the Internet usage, it may apply to some folks here. They may be impacted by this, but I, I think the term is mommy blogs. Um, they, they can load guilt on women, on mothers. The, the, every... Every every writer has a certain viewpoint they're putting out, and if you don't follow that, there are certain ways that you can react. Let me let me go on with my my illustration here. This may be more of an admonition for us to be wise, discerning readers, but for those of us here who do write, who do put forth stuff, it's also an apt scriptural warning. So, ladies or men, if you don't decorate your grilled cheese sandwiches to look like ice cream cones. If you have not alphabetized your spice rack, and if you haven't yet molded your family's soap into flower shapes, don't feel a sense of defeat and guilt. Etsy and Pinterest and Facebook and Twitter and blogs, if these are merely sources that bombard you with reminders of the things that you don't have, experiences that you have not provided for your family, and that somewhere, someone does something better than you do, is not edifying to your soul. These social networking sites have more influence over our perception of what's important than we realize. So partake in this information once in a while. Now, don't give up what truly inspires you and edifies you, but you need to decide what is worth your time, which is God's time, and your emotional investment. Your satisfaction is to be found in God. And this is true even if someone somewhere writes that they feel like they, quote, never really served as a God-fearing keeper at home until they served an entire meal that they grew or raised, killed, butchered, baked and canned and fermented entirely on their own. If spirituality is unduly attached, hence my phraseology, assumptive righteousness, if spirituality is attached to that description, and it weighs you down with guilt, look away. Don't let it eat at your soul and tear you down. I think most of us are consumers of the Internet, but for those who do write, for those who do express our creativity online, let us be careful that we are seeking to edify the hearer, to bestow grace, to meet the need of the moment. If our motive is to gain approval or to build our own stature or to be envied or to improperly express our creativity so that we receive glory, we should not speak or type or click. What we want to say becomes unwholesome and rotten when we write for our own glory. So there is a main point to this message and this passage. It's not just about being nice to people because the world is full of mean people and we need more nice people. It's not just about getting along and paying it forward and doing random acts of kindness. All those are true, and it's kind of cool to see stuff like that happen, especially in a week like this. All of those actions are needed in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, and among our friends. But why does God, through Paul, call us to this 
these verses as a practical evidence of our new lives and a demonstration of our unity as believers. I think we can look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 as an apt closing word. There, the Apostle Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is why our communication needs to edify and to build up, to meet the need of the moment, and to give grace to those who hear. The world needs to see a difference in our communication. The world needs to see a winsome, wholesome, gospel-saturated, adorning-the-gospel difference in our words. Our language needs to set us apart from the culture that we're in. Within the body of Christ, wholesome, edifying speech is used by God to build unity. Outside the body of Christ, that same otherworldly sort of communication, that supernaturally spirit-empowered communication, will be used by God among unbelievers so that they will see our good deeds and glorify our God. That may begin with not partaking of the same profanity as those around you. If you flip that around and say, I want to edify, God, through his spirit, can take that desire to curse away from you. It may be, if, if you're here and you're saying, my sarcasm, sometimes funny, but my sarcasm is something that I, I just use to, to seek enjoyment by hurting other people. I like making them feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe God will take that away if we flip it around and say, you know, Spirit, what do you want me to say? What builds up the, the person that I, that I am speaking to? Whatever it is, and I genuinely don't know what it is for you, but whatever the change needs to be in our communication, I pray that God will be glorified in our words, spoken and written, as he continues to wash and transform our hearts and our desires. May our words build up and be a means of grace to those who hear. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we pray that you would, as I just said, continue to sanctify us, to make us more like your Son through the washing of your word. We pray that you would give us the desire to know you better, to see your character. We know in seeing your holiness, recognizing our desperate state, to recognize how you've chosen to use flawed vessels such as us, that you can transform our desires of our heart, and that in so doing you'll transform the communication coming out of our mouths and through our fingers. I pray that we would become a people who are known for our edifying talk, that our marriages would be known for building up the partner that you've given us to walk on this earth with. That our children would see transformed parents and understand their need of salvation. That when we come in contact with fellow sinners and unbelievers, they don't see judgment, they don't see condemnation but they see people who came to the cross desperate for salvation, that they see hope 
and that they too will see their need of a Savior. Father, we thank you for these simple verses. We pray that the applications will have been winsome in presentation, but that we would take it to heart. Pray that you'll continue to work in this service and in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we come now.